Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. If you're a fan of the show, write us a review and tell your friends about us. And if you donate at thebittersweetlife.net, you'll not only help keep the show going, you'll get a handwritten thank you note in the mail. And we will never forget you. Also, if you want to sponsor the show, contact us through thebittersweetlife.net. And if you're new, welcome. I'm Katie Sewell. This show begins in Rome, right after I quit my job as a senior producer for public radio and moved there. This was totally out of my character. My co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer, author of Midnight in the Piazza, and she's my childhood friend. And she also moved to Rome, but over a decade ago. She flew there with no real plan and managed to stay. Don't be afraid to start way back at the beginning. I promise you'll be entertained. And don't be afraid to start thinking about how you might want your life to be different. We're all on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by a great author. Robert McFarlane is the author of best-selling, prize-winning books about nature, place, and people, including Mountains of the Mind, The Old Ways, Landmarks, and The Lost Words. In 2017, he was awarded the E.M. Forrester Prize for Literature by the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He lives in Cambridge, England, where he's a fellow at Cambridge University, but he's joining me in San Francisco. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, very happy to be here. You took a long journey to get to this <laughs> interview. <laughs> I did, and it was a roundabout journey as well. It began in North Carolina and has gone through many cities, but uh, this is my last day in America, and I'm very happy to be here. This isn't your last interview in America, is it? Uh, getting there, getting there, nearly. A couple more. Okay, a couple more. His latest book is called Underland, A Deep Time Journey, and that's what we're going to be exploring here today. So you open the book very beautifully by giving us a lot of different pictures of things that have happened in the underworld, the underland, underground. But you end that sort of meditation with a story that appeared in the news not that long ago, and I thought maybe we would start there and then see where we go from there by having you read that section of the book. Yeah, great. I think people may remember this. It happened pretty much exactly a year ago from the, the day we're, we're talking, so here goes. On a muddy ledge, two and a half miles into the cave system of a mountain in which they've become trapped by floodwaters, 12 boys and their football coach sit in utter blackness, conserving the batteries of their phones, waiting day after day to see if the waters will rise or fall, or if by miracle someone will come to rescue them. With each passing hour, the oxygen in their chamber is reduced by their breathing, and the carbon dioxide levels increase. Above the mountain, the monsoon clouds build, threatening more rain. Outside the mountain, thousands of rescuers from six countries gather. At first, they don't know if the boys are alive. Then, they find handprints in mud on the walls of a chamber two miles into the system. Hope is given. Divers push further and further along the flooded passageways. Nine days after entering the mountain, the boys hear sounds coming from the river that flows past their ledge. Then they see lights glowing in the water. Bubbles seethe up. The lights rise. A man breaks the surface. The boys and their coach blink in the beam of his head torch. One of the boys raises a hand in greeting, and the diver raises his in reply. How many of you? asks the diver. Thirteen, one replies. Many people are coming, says the diver. 
So these scenes from the underland unfold along the walls of this impossible chamber, down in the labyrinth beneath the river Nash. The same three tasks recur across cultures and epochs, to shelter what is precious, to yield what is valuable, and to dispose of what is harmful. Shelter, memories, precious matter, messages, fragile lives. Yield, information, wealth, metaphors, minerals, visions. Dispose, waste, trauma, poison, secrets. Into the underland we have long placed that which we fear and wish to lose, and that which we love and wish to save. It's a great opening. It really is. It's a beautiful book. So how did you decide that those were the three categories of what we do underground? Shelter, yield, and dispose. I spent seven years thinking about it, and I, I, I read uh, hundreds, probably thousands of, of underworld stories from many cultures, many languages in, in translation. I traveled to, to underworld landscapes across the globe, and I talked with many people who have been drawn downwards into darkness. And gradually, these three tasks emerged. I mean, I'm always hesitant about generalizing about, you know, all of culture, but we have been going into darkness for longer than we have been anatomically modern humans. And so those those stories span a huge stretch of time, and they those are the tasks that recur. Well, and I know that your other books, and I'm sure everyone asks you this, have been not just on the land itself, but in the mountains. So you went completely in the opposite direction. What drew you into exploring the underworld? Yeah, I, I didn't quite see that it was happening. But yeah, I, the first <laughs> book I ever wrote was called Mountains of the Mind. I was a mountaineer. I mean, I still am, but I, I'm very risk averse mountaineer. But there was a, I grew up climbing uh, hard, but incompetently. And uh, and so I, I tried to explain that that strange pull that mountains have over so many hearts and that we've seen, again, very modern news story last month with the photographs on Everest of 250 people queuing at 8,800 meters. So that's why go high, and this 16 years on is, is why go low. And the answer is older and stranger, it seems to me. Yeah. Have you been underground? I have been underground a little bit, but I don't really love it down there. <laughs> it, it's not a lovable realm on no. the whole. I mean, that's the. I think people people are drawn to the mountains because they think that their hearts will rise as they do, and the underworld is is an aversive space. It's a place of ghosts and death and deprivation and anxiety, and darkness. But also darkness. This is the other one of the other paradoxes of the underworld is often a place of vision. So I think it's that doubleness of of horror and aversion mixed with wonder and revelation that came to me to be very striking. Do you consider diving in the ocean to be part of the underworld? I do, I do, and there's a, there's a chapter called Starless Rivers in the book which, in which I describe, I go a thousand feet down under the limestone, down this narrow uh, water-carved chute with, with an amazing 70-year-old called Sergio, and we, we come through the roof of this huge chamber and into this area, a cathedral-sized area of black sand, and at the bottom of it is is a river running in full force, not just groundwater, but a full-on rapids and waterfalls river. And to meet that river in the darkness was incredible. It was a different sort of draw. But I also spoke with and write about some of the freedivers particularly. And they talk about the blue, and they talk about this beautiful tranquility that comes at great depth. You are in space or back in amniotic fluid, but it's incredibly dangerous as well. Cave diving and free diving. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
It is. It is. I, the whole time in reading your book, I kept thinking, I wanted to ask you what you make of explorer stories. <laughs> is that something that you are drawn to? I grew up on them, but I have become very skeptical of a certain kind of them, which is predominantly the heroic male seeking self-gratification on a mountaintop. Uh, and early in that in, in Mountains of the Mind, the first book I wrote, probably the line that's been quoted back to me more often than any other is, those who travel to mountaintops are half in love with oblivion and half in love with themselves. And I guess I've become more and more interested in diverse voices telling diverse stories about place. There's a, a wonderful Scottish writer, Anna Nan Shepherd, who's become a, a guiding light for me. She was born in the late 19th century. And she, she says she's much more interested in passes than peaks in pilgrimage than in conquest. So... I'm really turned off by the conquest narrative. And that, I guess, is what we saw fulfilled so horrifically on Everest last month. But the underworld pulls you down in ways it's not a very, as you say, it's not a very glorious place. It's why would you? (laughs) And yet people do. Yeah, there's something about explorer stories that have always given me a sense of unease or that it's irresponsible in a way. Like I always think of the people who are, left at home waiting for these people to come back and there were certain periods of time as you're entering caves with people and sliding through small spaces and and I'm thinking I've had that same feeling of why why do this well I I have uh, three children I'm at the school gates 330 days of the year or whatever I be married for 20 years I am very risk averse it may, it may not look it from this, but and I, I like to distinguish between fear and risk. I am very risk averse, but I am I am quite fear fascinated. And uh, it's possible to be fearful when you're not at risk. And actually, there was only one time in all the years of traveling for this book when I felt properly at risk. That was in the mountains when a, a weather system came in that I could not have forecast. So but actually claustrophobia is a phobia it's not a it's often not a realistic assessment of the situation so but i it really does grip you right i mean and that's why as a writer it's this incredible resource because you can you can watch people read your work and people keep writing to me saying i couldn't read this book i had to put it down I, i'm sort of air punching thinking <laughs> result <laughs> that is a result so you read about claustrophobia and it, it starts changes your heart rate your breathing you shift uneasily so it's a very powerful phobia and do you have a sense after being in so many underground places why claustrophobia is the number one thing that we as humans feel underground? Um, I don't. I mean, I think there's a kind of evolutionary psychological explanation for it, which says, you know, you're at risk here, your your sight is limited, you're in a more than human, non-human space. So I guess your brain is sort of hardwired to clamor, get out <laughs> of here now in a way that it might not be on a mountain, which has a good view, as it were, a good prospect, good refuge. But... Um, but what's interesting to me is despite all that, still we have been going into the darkness for so you think of Lascaux or Chauvet, the cave paintings where basically cinema was invented 20,000 years ago in the Dordogne, uh, incredible artwork. And that image that, that resonates through underland of the hand on the cave wall. And actually it was there in that very first reading that I just gave you that was fascinated me to see that one of the reasons they knew the boys were still alive was that two miles into the cave system, they came across a handprint in the mud on the cave wall. It wasn't a work of art. Obviously, they weren't thinking about me. They just, one of them had just put a hand against. But that is the image that goes all the way back into the human relationship with darkness. 
those early cave paintings of people's hands thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah, do you, do you feel the, the tingle down the spine when you mm-hmm. see those? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's sort of what you're trying to get at, I think, with the deep time that your subtitle, but also a repeating theme in the book is that there is something about the underland that ties us to the past and to the future. Is that That's right. That's really, really well said. And I'm glad you added the future as well, because I deep time runs into the future as well as into the past. That's to say we, you know, we're making and leaving legacies as a species now, which are going to last for generations and uh, indeed millions of years. There's an ethical question that reverberates through the book that I keep being drawn back to, which is this incredible question posed by Jonas Salk, the um, immunologist in the 70s, I think. And he says, are we being good ancestors? And that is where time seems to be running backwards, but suddenly flips forwards. And we think of ourselves as ancestors, not just as parents and grandparents, but as ancestors. And I think the answer, broadly speaking, is no, (laughs) we're not. Right. Well, there's two questions I want to ask you out of that. So don't let me forget to ask you what deep time is. But going into this idea of being a good ancestor, a lot of what you talk about is exactly that. Us not only burying our dead in the ground, but trying to bury these substances that we've created that are terribly dangerous in a way that won't harm whatever's coming after us, whether it be human or other creatures. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's that's right. I say somewhere we we are a burying species and a burrowing species. I think we think of ourselves as a you know predominantly a building species and above ground species. But we have drilled fifty million kilometers of borehole just looking for oil. We've buried our dead for potentially hundreds of thousands of years back into the the kind of hominin phases, and so we have this profound relationship with the underworld in those senses. Often that's a way of burying what's precious to us we love to be able to cross history to be able to go to a place on the surface of the earth where we know somebody dead is is laid to rest we feel that's a point we can speak to them but it's also how we get rid of the bad stuff (laughs) Um, and that includes in the penultimate chapter of the book high level nuclear waste we've proved very very poor at digging big holes in the ground and putting nuclear waste in that in finland which is where i write about they're constructing a a sarcophagus way below ground for nuclear waste, which with a 100,000-year kind of time span, the pyramids are about not even 5,000 years old. So it's an incredible structure they're trying to build there, and it is a way of being good ancestors, I think. Yeah, and they're trying to make something that could last 100,000 years, right? Yeah, exactly, and if not not longer, that's the timescale they're working to, and it's an incredible thought experiment. How How do you make a space safe and static for that long? And if you do do that, how do you warn whoever or whatever will be coming along in a hundred thousand years don't dig here <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's really bad stuff down here um, it didn't work with the pyramids like howard carter they were full of warnings and howard carter still broke open tutankhamun's tomb right yeah it's sort of the example that you give of even prince charming cut his way through the thorns to try to find out whatever was on the other side so. yeah. you can't get much more of a warning than a than a vast wall of thorns so it's, it's very close between a warning and an enticement and we you know we all know what happened to howard carter things went a bit better for prince charming but <laughs> <laughs> yes to be sure he, he won the princess in the end so in this chapter just Well, I do want to ask you about what deep time is, but just to finish this explorer idea, in the chapter where you are exploring the dark matter with the scientists underground, at one point you ask why they are searching for dark matter in the first place. And a scientist named Christopher Toth 
says that it's to not only gain further knowledge, but to give life meaning. And what he exactly says is, if we're not exploring, we're not doing anything. We're just waiting. And when I read that, I thought, I wonder what you make of that thought. I, I thought it was a beautiful thought, precisely because this wasn't the kind of exploring that is, you know, the lone white male on the on the summit of the mountain. This is an exploration of which is profoundly philosophical, goes to the heart of the void in, in terms of our knowledge of the universe. Dark matter seems to make up about 27% of the universe's mass. We have no idea what it is. We just know there is a void, like an underland in our knowledge. And so I, I love this idea of philosophical scientific expression because it has no use. That's the other thing. This is completely unapplied and inapplicable knowledge. There's a beautiful elegance to that, it seems to me. So I was very moved by this conversation, which took place in a laboratory cut into a salt stratum produced by the evaporation of a sea 270 million years ago. We were deep in deep time having this conversation and the conversation was about the birth of the universe. And so I, I thought this was the most wonderful kind of exploration. I don't know, was that is that what you, you found, a sort of beauty to it? Well, definitely. I love the philosophicalness, but I just thought that we're just waiting. and It has that kind of hanging in there, just waiting for what? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like it's that the Beckett play, wait, you know, waiting yeah. for Godot, and exactly, um, yeah. which was received so extraordinarily when it was an early performance in front of prisoners on life with life sentences. Mm. They absolutely responded to to that sense of just biding time. But so I guess I guess what Christopher was trying to do or was reflecting on was an was an was an urging of us always to keep cognizant of our ignorance. That to me is what he was saying. He said, we will never know everything. Don't ever presume that there's a totality of knowledge available to you. So keep searching, whatever you're, whether it's your own backyard, come to know a single species or the bird communities that are there, or whether you're trying to solve the mystery of dark matter, keep looking. Hello, I'm Tiffany. And I'm Katie. Breaking into the show really quick so I can ask Katie a question. Yes. So as you know, Katie, we're challenging our listeners to help us reach a financial goal of $1,000 a month on Patreon. We are. And you know what, Tiffany, if everyone listening pitched in 5 10 even $20 a month, we would make that goal in a heartbeat. So my question for you is, why do we need $1,000 a month? Well, 600 to $700 of that is covering our monthly costs. That's web hosting fees, taxes, advertising, equipment charges. You know, the day-to-day -day expenses that keep a weekly show running. So what about the other 300? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, Tiffany, that we've been doing this show for over five years and haven't ever really been paid. Have you noticed? I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping that the person listening to my voice right now will love the show enough to wish that their hosts got paid for making it too. So $150 a piece seems like a modest start, don't you think? I think it would be great. It would. So if you love the show, please support it and all the hard work and effort that goes into making it. Netflix can survive without you. We can't. So visit patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast and become a donating member of our community. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the bittersweet life podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. And now back to the show. So what is deep time since we keep referring to it? What does that mean to you? Deep time is geological time is the is the earth historical time or the earth future time. It's divided into epochs and eras and eons, whereas our time is divided into these puny units of, of seconds and minutes and hours, which is not to say that our time is 
is pointless and useless and wafer thin. In fact, to me, deep time sharpens our time. It says, you should not be here. Really, your life is, pre is preposterous fortune within the context of the universe. And so regard it as a miracle, as a gift, and a gift that will give on. And so for me, deep time doesn't kind of crush us to insignificance. It says, live every second brightly and be conscious of, of all that you are entangled with and involved with. Did you find that being underground away from the sun helped you discover that within yourself? It profoundly did. The most jubilant passages in the book and the passages where language probably um, turns somersault most is where I surface. <laughs> Actually, uh, the longest I was ever underground was only two and a half days in the catacombs under Paris. But arising up to the light again, seeing the sun, seeing the color green, the blue of the sky, hearing music, seeing leaves fall from trees. These were miracles. <laughs> yes. Well, you, know, you actually say that being in those catacombs was the only time that you felt fear. Why? Because I had to crawl through an 18-inch high gap with metro trains running above me, and I could feel the vibrations passing through this quite unstable limestone through my body and then on through the, the limestone below me. And this was a passage so tight my head couldn't go through it upright, and I had to drag my pack looped onto my foot. So, you know, as claustrophobic situations go, this was basically a long coffin. <laughs> that's what it felt like and then we popped out of the other end of this tunnel and and because there's this whole subculture of cataphiles cataphilia people who love the catacombs and hundreds of them come down into this labyrinth uh, dozens of miles long under paris southern paris on party nights and we kind of came out of this scene of extreme edgar Allan poe like horror <laughs> and then we found ourselves in a party room and there, there were these strangers giving me shots of vodka there was the jam going underground on the on the little sound system there was brie there was party there was music and then we all dressed up as indiana jones it was profoundly surreal <laughs> so and that seemed part of the underworld as well this is where people change state stories take unexpected turns did you have to go back out that same way all the vodka and brie? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we got into more trouble that late that night about 2 a.m. Though you don't really keep time down there when someone lit this big Indiana Jones style taper and, and filled the, the system with smoke. We had to get out of there pretty fast. I spent the night in a, an air raid shelter down there that night and then we came out the long way the following day. Okay, that seems like a good <laughs> place to ask you. Um, a lot of this book, you're going back and forth between in the ways that we feel about it, this sense of wonder and this sense of it being a place to be feared. And I thought that one of the best contrasts of that was your contrast of what the wood wide web is versus the story of Neil Moss. That was sort of the encapsulation of it for me. So I don't know if you'd be willing to like kind of explore both of those things as an allegory for the wonder and the fear of the underground. That is a great question and a great contrast. And you're, you're the first person to have contrasted f fungi and moss, um, which uh, which is what I guess joins these. So I'll start with the wood wide web. is brilliant, not my coinage, sadly, but this is this is uh, the phrase that describes this ancient mutualism between plants, trees, particularly, and fungi. Fungi send out their hyphae, which are basically their long, thin fingers, very, very thin, fine, uh, under the soil through this through the rhizosphere. They penetrate tree roots, plant roots, and then create a cellular level interface. So you effectively you get plants and trees hooked up to this enormously complex fungal system, which then joins them to other plants and trees. And this is the wood wide web in its structural form. 
it's a mutualism that's been going on for more than 400 million years. We know that because fossils tell us that. It's very widespread. It's happening in your garden. It's happening in the redwood forests that I was walking through yesterday. And what it allows, it allows the fungi to get effectively carbon, because fungi can't photosynthesize, from the trees. So they, the, the fungi uh, abstract the carbon from this as it moves through the wood wide web. The trees get uh, nutrients that the fungi metabolize within the soil. And it also allows trees to communicate with one another. This is the real mind-blowing sort of social network aspect to it. It allows them to send, in some sense, signals, or as Suzanne Simard, the pioneering scientist who really broke open this from a Western perspective, calls it speech. Just trees talk to one another. <laughs> and among those signals might be, hey, we've got, we've got a boring beetle coming in at this side of the forest. You better upscale your chemical defenses a bit further into the forest, this kind of thing. So this is... A miracle. It changed the ground I walk on. I know I don't look down in the same way. So that's utterly thrilling. Then we have Neil Moss, who uh, more than 50 years ago was leading a caving expedition in Peak District in Derbyshire, which is a limestone region. And it was an exploratory expedition. And he, he was a tall, thin man, very athletic, good caver. He was designated to go down this pot, that's to say a sort of near vertical shaft, very narrow. And he went down it and he slipped off the ladder that he was descending and he kind of dropped and wedged into this pot it's greasy it was slick it was limestone with water on it and he was stuck and he calls up so he says basically hey chaps i'm stuck and they're like oh it's fine no, 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 we'll get you out they can't get him out and every time he tries to move to improve his position to get his feet back on the ladder to, to pick up the rope that's being dangled down to him he wedges himself a little bit tighter. And it's that brutal feedback mechanism, which is among the many things that makes this a chilling story. And eventually he passes out um, because the carbon dioxide levels in the pot pick up and, and then he dies over a long period of time. Meanwhile, a vast, vast rescue effort is being mounted to get him out of this place. So yes, these are the two, two ends of the underworld, I think, a place of brutal matter, a place of miraculous matter. And both of them are metaphors and myths of their own. Another thing you write, I have a few things I must ask you before you leave. Um, <laughs> so you write, in the Underland, I have seen things I will never forget and things I wish I had never witnessed. Do you have a story of each of those that you want to share? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I'll, st I'll start with the things I wish I'd never witnessed. And these were the, the killings, the executions that happened in the limestone landscapes of northeastern Italy and Trieste and the Slovenian highlands as they now are. This is a landscape that's been fought over during the First World War, the Second World War. So much death has happened there and so much of it has been involved with the geology. So mountains are honeycombed out to make conflict zones, you know, gun embrasures, avalanche shelters, um, soldiers' barracks effectively during the White War and the First War. And then during the Second World War, a lot of reprisal killings were carried out. We don't really know the, the stories of them, but men and women were taken to the edges of sinkholes and either killed and then thrown in, or in some cases bound with barbed wire, it seems, and then pushed in alive. So the sense that landscape there is not innocent, it isn't ever really innocent anywhere. These were horrific stories to encounter and to see how they literalized our sense of the underworld as a place of death. Mm -hmm. uh, the wonder, ice... I'm just such an ice fan. I've, uh, I've been writing about ice and snow for nearly 20 years now. And I, I, the, the last third of the book goes up to the icy regions of Norway, Finland and Greenland. And abseiling into the port, into a great moulin meltwater shaft on a, on a vast glacier in, in East Greenland. 
Uh, it's a blue humming tube. You are making a journey to another planet. Wow. Where did your captivation with ice come from? Uh, mountaineering? Or? Ma yeah, predominantly <laughs> mountaineering in Scotland, uh, where my, a lot of my family are from, and we're very north there. So, And I also just think, you know, the, f the fate of ice is the fate of us. It's this mm -hmm. shape-shifting, miraculous uh, substance that determines the world in profound ways. And right now, the extent of ice melt glacial flow is determining sea level rise, sea level shift. So uh, there's a very strong sense of being in the presence of a substance that is so much more powerful than us and yet that we are controlling. Did you get a sense of whether or not, besides the fact that humans are drawn to the underworld for all sorts of reasons, whether it be hiding their treasure or looking for our treasure, <laughs> say, um, did you get a sense of whether or not we actually belong down there? That is a really good question. And I don't think belonging is a relationship that we have with the below ground realm. I think often the people who find themselves below ground are the, are the poor and the powerless or the imprisoned or those who labor down there often under pretty exploitative conditions. This book may be said to have its origin in 2010 when among other things, the deep water horizon blowout occurred and the Chilean miners, the 33 Chilean miners were trapped following an explosion in the Sao Paulo gold and copper mine. So it is not an easy place to live or belong, no, but it is a place to which we have made these journeys and come back with yields of horror or of wonder. So you went through years of going underground as a journalist. Did any of this become part of your normal life, sort of like mountaineering? Are you now a cave explorer? <laughs> what happened now? No, I'm not. I, it was fascinating to be to be down there for so long. But it, yeah, it's not a place to which I belong. And so I'm coming back up to the skies. I'm, I'm working on a big book about birds with this incredible artist, Jackie Morris. So, so it is good to be above ground, aloft, um, on the wing and in the sun. Very nice. We just briefly touched on you saying that cave divers were just one of, of several people, I feel like, in the book that talk about this sense of serenity that you can get when you're in the yeah. dark. Can you describe how that is still with you or what, how you experience that? Yeah, I could. I could read uh, this little poem that Natalia Molchanova, yeah, who's, yeah. A, who's a freediver, wrote. Who, she subsequently died while freediving, but I have her son's permission to re reproduce this poem that she wrote. This catches something of the serenity that comes from being underground, protected by, by rock if you're in the underland, or, or in this case water if you're diving deep and free. And this is by Natalia Molchanova. I have perceived non-existence, the silence of eternal dark, and the infinity. I went beyond the time. Time poured into me, and we became immovable. I lost my body in the waves, becoming like its blue abyss, and touching on the oceanic secret. And she died not long after she wrote that in, in 2015, diving off the coast of Ibiza. It was a shallow dive. She dived far, far deeper than that into the, the, the blue hole, a 390 foot deep sinkhole in the Red Sea, and she'd surfaced from that, but she didn't surface from this and, and never has. And so what do you make of that, that exploration? This serenity that she gets, is that worth her dying a few, a little bit later? I am not in a position to declare on, on the assessments that she made. I mean, there is clearly a joy an utter profound kind of existential joy in what she writes about there and that 
you know that shaped her life and it drew her down and down and down and down and down again that's not me <laughs> i think if i learned one thing from from these years underground it's how much i love the light and how much i love the living yeah that's interesting i was going to ask you what being underground so much and not just visiting these places where death and tragedy has occurred but also considering graves and catacombs how did it change or did it change how you feel about death yeah i guess it did i've no i mean it's easy to say at the age of 42 that you're not scared of death i'm not scared of death i see it just as a, a redistribution of my mineral body predominantly but it do, it did sharpen the the wonder of of every minute and every hour and the book ends with my son uh, who's now six but then was three going on four and we just go together to a a spring site where nine springs rise from the chalk and that's it's their sites of miracle springs everyone loves a spring it's like wow look at that water just coming out of the ground um this is very near my house and um and it's a place where where things surface so it's the it's the end of the book it's a surfacing and and he and i are just together by in the universe and small and vulnerable and but together that sense of where value is that's how the book ends you're a really beautiful writer but did you have trouble with these huge massive themes being able to write about it the limitations of language i guess is what i'm thinking of i not saying you didn't pull it off but it's i mean yeah it took it took so long it took the best part of a decade and uh, it's longer than any other book i've ever written and yeah actually i left gaps in this book that was one way to write about void and darkness is to to ask the reader to make their own journeys of connection and so there are periods in the book where i'm explaining things like the wood wide web very you know fully and then there are others where i hope this sort of network of tunnels and a sort of word wide web that the reader is part of making so yeah i realized that to write fully about this involved actually leaving things out robert mcfarlane is the author of best-selling prize-winning books about nature place and people his latest book is underland a deep time journey thanks so much for coming on thank you i've really enjoyed our conversation me too this is the bittersweet life i'm katie sewell Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing the bittersweet life on YouTube and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for the Bittersweet Life podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. 